hottest way to start. <laughs> so much throat clearing. Oh, yeah. I can read, you can read, we can read. We're reading together. I married you, you married me. We got married, yeah, we married each other. Now we're reading books, talking in mics, discussing stuff with one another. We're a, a couple's book club. Welcome to Couples Book Club. I'm Lauren. That's Isaac. <sniffs> he just sniffled. Yep. This is our book club where it's us, we're a couple. Club people with books. Yep. And they deserve it. Yes. But we both have the same book. Slash it's ironic because they always say like words can't hurt you. And I'm like, <laughs> fuck that. Hit you with a book, motherfucker. Yep. Mm-hmm. And then I do. And then they don't say that anymore. <laughs> Mostly because they're unconscious. But... <laughs> All right. Cool. Hi. Cool. Good. Good. We're back with another book that we have both read, and we're going to talk about it. In a somewhat similar timeline. Marriedly. Yep. Hear the matrimony in every word. Matri- matrimoniously, we'll discuss it. Yep. For this episode, we read a book. As, as is the theme of the podcast. <laughs> title page. Title page, yeah. Uh, entitled, Creepy Crawling. Charles Manson and the Many Lives of America's Most Infamous Family by Jeffrey Melnick. Copyright 2018. I guess we could talk about what it's about? Since that's what we do in every episode. I mean, it's about Manson. It's about, it's like a cultural history of Charles Manson. It's like history, but for nerds who don't like themselves. Are you talking about us? Because we did... Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like a prereq for doing that as your, okay. All right. your thing. Well, the whole thing, he uses this theme of creepy crawling, um, which if you don't know, uh, what have you been doing yeah. with your Seriously. life? Really? If you've if you read Helter Skelter less than half a dozen times, I'm not really sure why you're I've even only here. Read it. I've only read it once. What? What? Seriously? Yeah, I borrowed it from you, like, Fuck, like bro. eight years ago. Come on. Nine years ago. Come on. Why would I read it again? I already what read it. What a true it. crime person are you? Because it's good. And you notice stuff it, the second time. I thought it was good. Or third time, or fourth time. I didn't, I don't, you know how, like, little I read and how much TV I watch? I can't yeah. fit in a second reading of Helter Skelter. Have you seen the, the miniseries? No. Fuck. Come on. I didn't even know it was available. I didn't even know it was a thing until I read this book. Oh, it's available. You can get it from the library. Did I tell you about... We, we watched that in high school, in my sociology class that the baseball really? coach taught. Yeah. Oh, sure. It was weird. Uh, it's not very good, but it's kind of funny. <laughs> like yeah. unintentionally funny? Unintentionally funny, sure. yeah. So if you don't know what creepy crawling is, it's something the Manson family did. And I will tell you that while I was reading Helter Skelter many many moons ago I actually had my first nightmare that I can remember having like ever uh, and it was about Charles Manson creepy crawling like literally crawling in my ceiling and like which was somehow a drop ceiling and then like he was like kind of spidering down 
over me and I was like laying on my back on the couch like napping and I woke up and I was like oh shit that's a nightmare yep yeah no I do think that's one of the I don't know and probably sort of why he picks it as his I don't know sort of central metaphor that that's one of the like want to try to find a way to say it other than creepy but creepier aspects of uh, the whole like sort of Manson discussion universe whatever is that idea of just like being able to access someone's private space and making them aware of it but with no other real intention beyond that seemingly right so they would break into people's houses sometimes when they were home and asleep yeah and just like watch people while they slept and then like move some shit around but like not take anything or hurt anyone just so you were aware that they were there yeah didn't uh, they creepy crawl the LaBianca house before they murdered them I think theoretically yeah they did cause they they had told someone I think maybe even their daughter that like they thought someone had been into the house while they were away oh, just, to me like obviously being murdered is horrific uh, but there's something really like fucked up like a mind fuck about somebody being in your personal space and yeah not even there to hurt you or to like rob you but just to mess with your mind just to move things around to make you feel unsettled and unsafe yeah and so Melnick uses the idea of creepy crawling to talk about the way that um yeah, the idea of the Manson Manson and the Manson family has infected our culture or whatever. Yeah. They're, like, moving our cultural shit around. Cultural couches. Exactly. Cultural tchotchkes. Instead of cultural couches, a good band name. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> no, I know it's it not. It is not a good band name. <laughs> um, so there's, like, four parts. Um, the first part is about, like... Uh, creepy crawling family so it's about like the family and about like the cultural stuff about the breakdown of the family and runaways and shit that was happening in the late 60s mm -hmm. and then part two well and i feel like too i mean he if i'm recalling correctly the way he sort of blocks out the period is like i don't know early family stuff which is maybe 68 or so and I feel like he what he's he sort of runs it up through about seventy four when the book and the documentary come out. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the window that he's primarily focusing on. So stuff like that, the like runaway and family stuff is like late sixties, yeah. early seventies that he's talking about. Yeah, so like the cultural context of like what like yeah, some of the reasons why people might find that idea of a family particularly upsetting. Mm -hmm. Part two, creepy crawling Los Angeles. So it this one's kind of a a very. Um, well, I think this is talking about like t the degree to which like Manson and the family were intertwined in a lot of stuff that was sort of happening, it within Los Angeles within yeah. that sort of so cultural the first, space. Yeah, the first section's more like society, and the second section's like culture, pop culture in particular in LA. Yeah, and. Um, yeah, stuff about hippies and freaks and um, the various musicians. And Is that all the, like, Frank Zappa stuff? 
Is that that section? I think so. That life I didn't, didn't care about. And just a bunch of shit I didn't care about. Yeah. Part three is about, like, kind of Charles Manson and true crime and about Bugliosi and Helter Skelter, the book. Some other shit. And then part four is about, like, Charles Manson as a figure, like, in various media over the years. And it's a bunch of, like, hyper-specific shit about, like, random... Well, it's just random crap you've never heard of. Like, like, yeah, like, random... all these shitty novels and then... Visual artists and, like, punk people. Yeah. Which I didn't care that much about. I think that's, like... it's uh, it's been a while since I looked at it, but that nine eleven culture book that he wrote that I've used for stuff before, which was pretty mm-hmm. good, is a similar sort of thing where it's like there's some parts that are really good, and then there are some parts that are like hyper specific cultural artifact things, which are sort of interesting. But it's all because it's like I've never heard of this. This is interesting, but then it just goes on, and it's kind of like I don't need a twenty page breakdown of this novel that no one has ever read, kind of thing. Right. But so I'm readjusting. We have a new couch. It's pretty great. It's like a pseudo sectional. It's got like a chase lounge section. So I like to kind of get tucked up here in the little L area. Also, it makes it easier for me to look at you. Look at your face. Look me in the eyes when you podcast with me. <laughs> what? <laughs> Not even in the same room. I've just got a cord. <laughs> In the office, hanging out. Uh, the cord's not quite that long. It's like a, it's like an isolation booth for sound purposes. <laughs> really got to bring out the richness of my tone. Sure. Uh, yeah. So some parts of this were really compelling. Mm-hmm. Other parts, not so much. Um, and I will say that the greatest outrage of this book is that there were two very very small mentions. Mm-hmm of what I think is the most important Manson cultural element. Uh, that is the figure of Marilyn Manson. Um, yeah, it's kind of a missed opportunity there. Like, he doesn't have to go in and do the fucking close readings of Marilyn Manson lyrics, which are not subtle. Yeah, not especially. But just the idea that, like, like you could do, like, a sentence or two about, like, why would uh, Marilyn Manson, why would that guy choose, you know, those particular names? Um, like what kind of cultural cachet is he I mean I obviously we get why it's not complicated no I mean I think I don't remember if he sort of describes it in those terms but to me it's kind of like um, in like sort of early punk movement how people would use like Nazi stuff yeah like you would just wear like a swastika armband or something like that not out of any like real sympathy with the ideology but just as like shorthand for for evil or something like that yeah so if you if you have this throwaway kind of manson reference even if it's not something you really pursue or do much with it's automatically sort of marking yourself as outsider marking yourself as threat as danger or whatever and so i think that's part of it it's just like he knows this is going to be a trigger for people yeah like if you call yourself manson people will automatically assume certain things going into it Mm mm-hmm uh, and then obviously with the like Maryland aspect of it, the like mashing of culture and celebrity and well, and he did some like vaguely gender bendy things. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's no Jackalonassus, but I think it was when I was reading this that I, I came up with that uh, the alternate Manson 
Marilyn Manson band member name, hmm. which I, th- I I thought Latex Watson would be awesome. <laughs> as a... It's a slightly deep cut, but I do like it. I mean, yeah. it's no deeper than any of the cuts made in this book. Yeah, no, he's doing some serious Which are like, analogous to Spelunkin. the cuts made into Sharon Tate's womb. It's good. Thank you. It got really quote close and quiet, like I'm on uh, public radio. It seemed like uh, some like delicious dish shit. <laughs> uh, what's in your sweaty balls? <laughs> sweaty ball sack. <laughs> classic, classic, classic. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, I think that would have been for for as much as he pursues sort of obscure stuff, which I think is probably, I don't know it's easier and it's also I mean there's some something to be said for sort of digging these things up or bringing them back uh, under the sort of I don't know critical lens to see like here's the stuff that no one has ever sort of heard of or I didn't read that much about it at the time but it was interesting to see him talk about Aquarius a little bit that series oh that bad, just because it was like aggressively series? shitty the couple episodes I watched but yeah we tried to watch like a couple it kind of made me want to revisit it reading about it again like I'm sure it's not good but just I mean I watch a lot of garbage it's probably no worse than other things I watch so it'd yeah. be worth I don't know putting in a season or something so it was a couple seasons right I think I thought there was only one but maybe they did two For some reason I thought there were two but maybe I'm it um, might have like started in the summer and then like gone through did. part of the year or something Yeah, I think it was so it might have just been one full season thing. I guess but yeah I don't know it wasn't good the first thing I guess that I'll pull out just because it's something we talked about before is um, his attitude towards Bugliosi in general I thought was kind of interesting mm. right so in case you aren't in the know Bul- it's fucking amateur hour in here. some people don't yeah, yeah I, I guess read fine. that shit fine, fine. Vincent Bugliosi was the um, was he the DA yeah and he was the prosecutor, the prosecutor in the Manson trial and he wrote Helter Skelter about the case and about the trial and is uh, like his he kind of built a true crime career off the back of that because he's written a bunch of other stuff since then yeah his um, like version of events is kind of the accepted cultural narrative about the Manson case yeah um since, well, yeah, the, the, since book, the publication of the, the book. book is a bestseller and has sold tons of copies and they make the documentary off of it and so yeah he basically sets the sets the discussion for it um and i thought that was interesting how it was sort of critical of him because i, don't know, I mean i guess i had sort of passively noticed some of that stuff the few times that i mm-hmm. read the book but it excuse me brought it into focus in a certain way no i won't excuse your verbs Fine see what you need to do i'll just do it into the mic next time so i trying to veil it um yeah no i just thought that was sort of interesting kind of useful to point out like this is why he or the reasons he would specifically try to push this motive that he didn't necessarily mm-hmm. need to push and um in some ways kind of questioning him building his career off of this thing uh because i haven't read i read the shorter and the longer of the JFK books that he wrote, which are both really good. Yeah. Well, and I just like the idea, like, you know, so Bugliosi is a huge figure and kind of helped develop the genre of true crime and, and Melnick kind of 
deconstructs what that means, but just kind of being like, first of all, the idea of helter skelter as a motive. So the idea that that Manson directed his followers to do these murders in order to uh, spur on the beginning of a race war. Yeah. Which has always seemed a little far-fetched to me, but, like, you know, he argues it really well. Yeah. No, I mean, in in the book, he definitely makes a pretty compelling case for it. So I could certainly see, definitely as a juror, too, how you could be um, pretty easily kind of convinced of that. Yeah. I mean, there's not really a question of the guilt of these people. It's just a matter of, like, it's, I think it's really difficult for people to get their heads around the idea that there's that their motives are unclear or they may not have really had good a motive. Well, and I think too, I mean, I don't know, again, I'm sort of removed from it. I don't know to what degree Melnick really addresses that, but I think the Helter Skelter motive is important in so much as it gets Manson on the conspiracy bit. That, like, getting the people who did the actual murders, that's fairly open and shut. Right, because Manson... there's physical evidence tying them to it. And you have confessions or um, at least, you know, Kasabian's testimony about why these people are involved. But if you can tie it into him specifically sending them out with this intent, yes, it makes it easier to get him on the conspiracy right. charge, I think. Which they probably could have done anyway, but it's it's maybe easier or more convincing if he's, like, this sort of mastermind figure. Yeah. Yeah, which, like, he pretty clearly was, but it was, like, it's it's more nuanced than that. It's less, I think it's less cut and dried. But, I mean, obviously that's a prosecutor's job is to... Cut it and dry it. Cut it, dry it, and just see if the audience likes jerky. Exactly. Yeah, that's it. Pretty much a, pretty much a jerky salesman. <laughs> that's what being a prosecutor is. Selling oh. that meat. But I do like him talking about Bugliosi just being, like, kind of a pompous dick. Yeah, yeah. Which I could see. Um, and also how he would get, like, irate because uh, there was one of the... Def- one of uh, Benaric, yeah, the defense yeah, attorney. Yeah, Manson's defense attorneys who would refuse to say his name right. He called him Bugliosi the whole time. And Bugliosi would, like, whine to the judge and be like... He's saying it wrong. <laughs> I do remember that being a thing that he sort of concedes in Helter Skelter. That he's like, say what you will about this dude's tactics, but he fought hard for his clients. Yeah. Well, yeah. Because I mean, did all the, like, tons of objections and motions and stuff like basically that. Basically, he was trying to obstruct the flow of the narrative that Bugliosi yeah. was presenting. Yeah. Well, yeah, because he, and I mean, this is something that Melnick argues in other places, is sort of trying to set up this certain vision or understanding of who the, what the family is and who these people are. And, you know, Kanerik is trying to disrupt that, that you're trying to make this smooth narrative of, uh, so it's prosecution, disrupted. Disrupted! Exactly. But yeah, just oh, trying trying to trying to mess it up a little bit for, I guess, kind of reasonable doubt purposes or something that like that. That guy should go into... Uh button-up shirts yeah you should that shit yep so long did you see his shirt tails popping out at all during the trial Mm -mm. perfect length (laughs) perfect (laughs) yeah but the i guess the the bugliosi criticism is sort of interesting because that's not something you really see and i mean the way he sets it up makes perfect sense that like yeah this dude is sort of like 
in a star-making moment here. He right. understands that what this is and that this is an opportunity to uh, build it up. And he talks about the sort of like ego-stroking things where um, he mentions his you know prosecutorial record going into it and how awesome he is and always gets these convictions and so on and so forth. Um, and he's, you know, Bulios, he's, I guess, relatively young when this is happening. He was in his 30s, right? Yeah, both he and Manson were, like, 35 when the murders happened. Yeah, so they're relatively young, at least to be handling a trial of this kind of magnitude. And so, uh, yeah, I just thought that was kind of interesting, because that's... I don't read a ton of, kind of, Manson stuff, but I've read books here and there, and I feel like that's not something that gets commented on a lot. It's more sort of about Manson or about the murders and not so much about... Bugliosi. I don't remember if Sanders really talks about it that much in, in The Family, the other sort of major book. Which is definitely worth reading. That one is kind of batshit, but in an entertaining kind of way. Because it's like all the like conspiracy theory stuff. At one point uh, on page 187, uh, Melnick refers to uh, Bugliosi as good lawyer, bad historian. Yeah. Which I respect. What is that in relation to? I remember that moment, but... He, uh, Bugliosi was just arguing that people are interested by the Manson case because they like things that are strange and bizarre. Yeah. And isn't, doesn't think that there's any larger social... Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Meaning to it. Yeah. Oh, I do think it's interesting, the idea of Manson and, like, the, quote, end of the 60s or whatever, which... It's like... Fuck you, baby boomers. Yeah, yeah. Get over yourselves. But uh, there's an idea. In the introduction, he talks about a little bit, and there's a, I, I guess, a, a a book or an essay by Joan Didion where she talks about the Manson. White album? Yeah. yeah about, yeah. I looked at it once to try to teach it because I thought I might try to use the Kasabian stuff out of there, and mm-hmm. I remember it being kind of underwhelming. But, yeah. Uh, but she talks about. Yeah, the idea that the Manson murders had this, like, chilling effect on uh, the culture and were like, oh, we're, we don't like hippies anymore because of the murders. Manson and uh, Altamont, man. That's it. Um, but uh, Melnick is like, it's not a thing. Yeah. In the introduction, he, yeah, he's talking about how he thinks that's a bullshit argument and says... Um, This is on page Roman numeral 15. The uncomfortable truth is that Manson was quickly converted into a weapon used to discipline the unruly generation which he had immersed himself. Yeah. Is is that not the the story of the 60s and baby boomers? Is it's like, we're going to do this shit, and it was awesome when we did it, but you guys can never do this, essentially. It's like, hey, remember when everyone was doing drugs and some of them were still legal? Now everything is illegal and will imprison you forever, especially if you're black. Yeah. Remember when we used to protest in the streets? Now we'll, we'll give the police military weapons and you can never do this again. No, and yet can't. we'll call you apathetic when you don't. And so, yeah, it's just like baby boomers sucking, essentially. Thanks, that generation. Oh, he talks about how uh, uh, Joe Biden said that every sentence Giuliani used to say consisted of a noun a verb in 9-11 and he refers to it as a sick burn as pretty sick burn (laughs) and not wrong Uh, now it's what a noun a verb and no collusion or something (laughs) like that 
Well, he he's saying that there's stuff about like a noun, a verb, and Charles Manson to blah blah blah. Whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Blah 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 blah. blah. Yeah. So the Bugliosi stuff I thought was sort of interesting. The um, I guess we already talked about the motive thing a little bit, but the like the early pitch for the like love of brother kind of motive to do like copycat stuff to get Beausoleil out and that that was as much of a motive so, as Helter Skelter what I for, who did he kill Hinman who's involved in Hinman I don't remember who that is so Hinman was like that I think he was like a musician dude and they were basically just trying to get money out of him okay um and so I think a couple of the girls I want to say Mary Brunner and someone else kind of basically held him captive in his house um and we're trying to get money out of him we're fucking with him manson cut his ear with a sword uh and then they ended up killing him uh and Beausoleil was a fucking idiot and was driving around in the dude's car and got dinged so he was in jail um and so part of and like after they killed him and they put stuff on the wall to try to make it look like a panther thing so they were like political piggy and blood and stuff mm-hmm. to try to set it up. And so that's part of the reason they did that stuff at, at Tate and LaBianca too, is to try to establish the continuity to say like, hey, this guy's in jail, but now there are all these other murders that are doing similar things. So it couldn't have been him. So you have to release him. Right. Um, and so I thought it was interesting to talk about that as maybe as much of a motive as anything else and the motive that some of the family members mentioned like when they were, you know, in custody, when they were interrogated or interviewed. Except for like, like it was that. That's a really stupid way to try and get somebody off. Oh yeah, yeah, it's no, like it's incredibly the stupid. The same group of people is committing all these crimes. Right, right, and not <laughs> doing a great, a very good job of it. No. But no, I, I just thought that was sort of interesting because that's something right. that, like for the most part, Bugliosi kind of categorically denies that it's about this bigger thing. Right, when it could be about both. Yeah. Or neither. Yeah. Or many. I mean, I think it's some combination of them and probably other stuff as well. Yeah. But for Bugliosi, it seems like it's like, you know, 90% Helter Skelter. And then a little bit of this other stuff. And I don't know if 50-50 is a better way to think about it. But I think the love of brother thing is more of it. That, like, I don't know that these murders would have happened or happened in the way that they did, at least without that sort of precipitating factor. And he also talks about the thing with uh, uh, the, like, African-American uh, drug dealer dude that Manson thought he killed and how that sort of expedited stuff a little bit, too. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's just like this weird sort of... I mean, violence of some sort was coming, I think. Yeah. But it's just like a weird kind of confluence of circumstances that produces those things. And all the stuff with Dennis Wilson and... Bugliosi just doesn't really engage with that. No, I mean, he has his line that he wants to pitch and he just hammers away at it until it's, you know, pretty convincing. But it's also like, I'm not sure that it's necessary. Oh, to do the whole helter-skelter thing? No, not necessarily. That I think there's enough... Yeah, there's enough physical evidence and testimony there to convict people without it, probably. But yeah, I mean, one thing that the book does is sort of talking about why he needed to do that. That there has to be this sort of cultural reckoning for this stuff that 
this is a chance to sort of smack down the hippies or reestablish the idea of what an appropriate family is uh, and sort of reset the order of this is who's included and this is who's sort of excluded from I don't know like viable culture and so if you know Manson and the family are embedded in the Southern California scene or in, embedded in that kind of music scene this is a quick way to sort of extricate them from that and to kind of sanitize the narrative a little bit right well yeah because there's all that stuff about the fucking golden penetrators oh yeah. which is my least favorite part because Melcher they're all sounds the, like an asshole they're all the worst people in the world yeah <laughs> i'm losing my mic although uh the description of his solo albums, which I don't even know if I realized that he did solo albums. They sound grim. Yeah, they sound grim as fuck. I gotta look that shit up. <laughs> Man, this is some bleak, like, early 70s, end of an era shit that he's uh, he's laying down here. Check it out. Well, because it's Terry Melcher, who's Doris Day's son and uh, record producer. Yeah. Uh, Dennis Wilson, the lesser Wilson. Drummer, Beach Boys drummer, yeah. And um, that other dude. Greg Jacobson. Yeah. Melcher's friend, yeah. And they call themselves the Golden Penetrators, which is... It's a shitty nickname. It's just anyway. not even creative. It's clunky. Like, what does it even mean? Yeah. I mean, obviously it's about, like, you know, doing it, but... And doing it, and doing it well. <laughs> <laughs> no? Hush. All right, whatever. Hush. But, like after um after the murder like and they were pretty well ensconced with the the Manson family yeah like they lived with Wilson for a while and Melcher was like all up in their business like trying to bang literally figuratively yeah they were all banging the girls one of my favorite side details of that which I guess I didn't know necessarily but um the Ruth Ann Morehouse thing is super fucked up anyway. That she, like, if I'm remembering correctly, Manson, I think, picked her up when she was hitchhiking when she was, like, I don't know. I think 13. 13. Yeah. Uh, and was feeling it and trying to make that happen. Uh, and so he pitches this line to uh, her dad, who was, like, a pastor or something, uh, who was really anti-Manson at first, but then... Uh, somehow had this idea that if she got married to someone else and then divorced that would somehow make her legal but then her dad got super into Manson and wanted to become part of the family and was really trying Mm -hmm. hard to get in but the detail that was new that was interesting was that uh, Melcher liked Ruth Ann and tried to like backdoor her in as a uh, like a housekeeper at his yeah. house and Candace Bergen put her foot down on it because yeah. she knew like exactly what that was that he just wanted to bang this teenager right uh, by housekeeper he means dick keeper dick keeper yeah, yeah. cock keeper cock good dude will do exactly uh, but that that's a good indication of who this dude is mm-hmm. that he's just trying to like make that happen but like Dennis Wilson kind of like really tried to distance himself and pretend that he had not been that connected to them. And obviously, like, Melcher, like, is more, at least publicly, self-reflexive about, like, his involvement with them. Yeah. But also during the trial, tried to kind of um, 
Well, he fucking hangs Jacobson out to dry. Yeah. And trying to put daylight between himself and the family and say, no, it was just this dude. He was into it. Well, and he also, yeah, and he also, like, like goes along with Bugliosi's story, uh, you know, like, as a witness for the prosecution. Yeah. The first section that's about, like, the, f- the idea of the family, like, in society and this whole idea in, like, the late 60s about, like, there's a, a severe runaway problem mm-hmm. and, um, you know, obviously there's this counterculture that, like, you know, scares old people. Sure. Um, Kids these days, get off my lawn, etc. Mm-hmm. And then, like, obviously the idea of the, quote, the girls, the Manson girls, some of whom were girls because they were fucking teenagers, but yeah. uh, others were young women. Um, just, like, the idea of these, them as these kind of, like, uh, lost little runaway girls, but also, like, kind of, like, sexy, and people are intrigued by this idea of, like, them as Manson's harem and that being... Um, well, and I think, I mean, attractive. most of them, yeah, in, are sort of conventionally attractive in a way where people would be sort of, I don't know, interested in that angle of it. Um, one thing I did mark, which I thought was sort of interesting in that section, is he talks out about this sort of like dropout versus runaway thing. Mm-hmm. The idea that these are kids who are just sort of, they're burnouts, they're losers, they're dropouts or something, versus the idea that they were runaways and so indicative of that larger kind of strain of this being a thing that's happening. They hang it on that grassy knoll over there. Yeah, exactly. Some clueless. Yeah, that's good. Uh, And uh, (laughs) the idea that they might have had something to run from, so the idea that the nuclear family can be this sort of site of abuse or that there can be stuff happening there that's not sort of the, you know, 50s sitcom happy version of home life sort of thing. Uh, And there's, I mean, there's creepy stuff with pretty much all of their families to a certain degree yeah um, yeah no the idea that they're like that they're running from something they have a background potentially of, of, of an abusive home and- yeah but the idea i mean that's one of the things that i don't know i think it sort of makes the manson family kind of what it is is that sort of titillation factor of thinking about um and i talked about this in class when i was teaching the novel the other day that uh the emma klein novel um the idea of young women doing this kind of violence is something sort of weird or strange Mm -hmm. or especially I think in the case of Sharon Tate with the Susan Atkins stuff that there's this expectation that you're a woman you have some sort of maternal instinct so you would have some sort of sympathy for uh, a pregnant woman and then so you know Susan Atkins not doing that and even sort of thinking about cutting the baby out is just this weird sort of perversion of expected roles and so I think that's what gets people's attention also that they're conventionally attractive and so that is part of it um this weird sort of sexual promiscuity kind of thing that's implied by family life uh is a, a sort of point of interest um yeah i mean there's a lot of sort of complicated stuff happening with them but then also this idea that they're sort of involuntary pawns of manson and that it's impossible for impossible for women to demonstrate this kind of agency that obviously there has to be some sort of puppet master behind the scenes telling them what to do and stuff. And so there's tons of interesting stuff going on with them. And I think especially sort of Malik doesn't talk about that much, but more recently stuff about like parole hearings. Oh yeah. Cause they aren't letting any of them out. Yeah. And I think, I mean, you could make a, I think Van Houten is probably the one that you could make the, 
maybe the best case for but like people who have you know repeatedly admitted like obviously this is fucked up i was not in you know a correct frame of mind to be making that decision Mm -hmm. and you know have been model prisoners and have done basically everything they can to sort of build you know lives for themselves yeah in the aftermath but because they're attached to this infamous thing yeah that like no one is ever going to let them out uh and i understand from you know because i know deborah tate uh uh, sharon's sister is very involved in those parole hearings and i can understand you know psychologically why you wouldn't want someone out but like if there's ever an idea of rehabilitation that goes along with being in prison like these people are as rehabilitated as you're gonna get i think there's so many garbage people who get paroled for horrible shit yeah and And this is like literally like almost 50 years ago which is like not to say that they don't deserve whatever but like yeah it just kind of seems at this point it's just like the state is just like making a point like no yeah yeah no i'm 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 used to it i'm used to the state you know sticking it to to black men sure but white women conventionally attractive white women like what the fuck (laughs) heavens no come on your priority is straight there was one uh little cultural example in the section about the family writ large yeah um which is uh so he talks about a couple uh he talks about some like movies like made for tv movies and um maybe some books that are kind of like about the runaway crisis Mm -hmm. uh written by like you know well-meaning adults sure 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 and um okay so apparently the book go ask alice which i have heard of but didn't really know anything about it was written by a mormon youth counselor which i had no idea it makes me want to read it more yeah i can add that to the list maybe Um, but it's yeah basically this girl like starts doing some drugs and then like kind of like spirals out of control and dies of an overdose by the end of the the book or whatever and is like you know not subtle and reminds me of the story that i wrote in health class in the ninth grade about a girl who meets um some older kids and um gets into trouble and uh ods on marijuana which apparently you can do uh well it was a short story written in first person and my teacher asked me if it really happened to me so that's the kind of drug education i was getting at weist junior high school (laughs) Let's talk about Manson as a father figure. Yep. And how, like, he's kind of the dad of the group, but also they're fucking him, so that's creepy. Yeah, the sort of, like, incest taboo stuff of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that stuff is really interesting, and I don't remember Melnick talking about it a ton, but in relation to Dennis Wilson, because, like, their dad is just, like, notoriously abusive dad psychologically murray wilson yeah and like brian wilson had all these like mental health issues partly related to that and dennis wilson clearly has all these sort of issues as well and like obviously something that manson was able to sort of perceive and seize on because that's partly his game and he says this to a lot of the woman that the women that they have like father hang-ups mm-hmm. and stuff because you know dads can be creepy to daughters a lot of the time uh and so yeah, no, the him as father thing is kind of interesting, and I think another one of the things that makes the family such a weird and sort of fascinating thing for a lot of people is that weird, like, sort of blurring of roles. 
Well, yeah, because he's older, but he's like. But not massively older. Like not really old enough to be their actual dad. Like old enough to be like your older brother if you were in a family with a bunch of kids, or and something like, potentially. You know, inappropriately old probably to be your boyfriend, but there's a part where he's talking about runaways and dropouts and shit and then there's this part like that people found it upsetting that they like ran away from their actual fathers to like this guy treating him in some ways in a sort of like fatherly way or him acting paternalistically uh was on 74 uh felt like a quote rebuke and even mockery to older men which like dudes maybe you just need to chill out it's not always about you guys. Yeah. Also, maybe this is a moment to reflect and see how you're like a shitty dad and you're creeping on your teenage daughter. Maybe that's why she's uncomfortable. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. uh, there's that part, I think, and I remember if this is quoting from one of her books or whether it's from her testimony or not, but where Susan Atkins is talking about, because didn't her mom die? Had like cancer or something? I don't know. And she talks about how like it became apparent to her that her dad wanted to fuck her. Oh, yeah, and that, that she thought familiar. she thought about it. Oof. Like, was this something she w- would do? Uh, and so that's obviously a weird situation. But she's always kind of interesting, too, because I think she has a very different dynamic with Manson mm-hmm. than so the, some of the other women, and that she's a little bit more sort of assured and had a life kind of on her own outside of him. So isn't really a like, straight-up kind of runaway in the way that the others are necessarily. Um, and so she's kind of interesting in that way. But yeah, the like creepy father sort of thing. And so if I guess in her mind, there's already a precedent for this sort of like incest kind of thing, that it's not at all weird. But I, uh, yeah, but I, I do think it's kind of interesting that one of the things that like made Manson villainous to like establishment straight culture whatever is yeah this idea that he's kind of like this perverse version of what a father should be well there's this this is on 253 4 there's this good quote where he's talking about Melnick is talking about like what Manson's real crime is what he's done wrong and why he needs to be sort of publicly tried and corrected Mm -hmm. and um, he uses the phrase uh, felonious misuse of male power (laughs) so the idea that basically we're not challenging patriarchy as such it's just that oh, you have to, no. you have to use it in appropriately sanctioned kind of ways right and so the fact that you're doing what you're doing is wrong and so we need to we need to nip that in the bud so we can still do what Slam we're doing now, it down basically yeah which was sort of interesting that yeah he's a father but the wrong kind of father and so it's important to reestablish that this is what the right kind of father is um, there's a moment where he, because uh, he talks about like, uh, at least a little bit about like horror movies that happen in like the early 70s that mm-hmm. make kind of r- allusion or reference to the Manson family with like psycho hippies and stuff. Mm-hmm. And there's one movie, I don't remember which one it is, but um, this one might have been later 70s, but um, Mackenzie Phillips is in the movie, mm-hmm. who's the daughter of one of the... John Phillips. Yeah, one of the mamas and the papas right yeah um and he just kind of like mentions that like she was a teen and she acted in it but Mm -hmm. like um like several years ago Mackenzie Phillips 
came out and talked about how she had this like long-term incestuous relationship with her dad yeah um which is like super fucked up obviously like her dad's fault but like um i when i when i saw that like that's what i thought of and he doesn't even mention that i don't know if it was just not germane to what he the point he was trying to make. yeah no that seems like like that would sort of fit into some of the larger stuff that he's talking about because that's i mean john phillips is theoretically part of that scene that manson is part of well yeah at least mama Cass was hanging out they were all kind of well and there are rumors about these sort of like orgies with sharon tate and stuff like that that Mm -hmm. and like yeah that they were they were fairly integral to that party scene and were at held parties that manson might have attended and stuff like that and so yeah that seems like kind of a missed opportunity that here's another moment you could use to kind of cement that point right like if you're going to mention this movie and mention her and her connection like yeah but yeah the movie stuff was kind of interesting i haven't seen that many of the sort of classic 70s horror films but uh texas chainsaw massacre he talks about i've seen that um Hills Have Eyes. I think I saw the first one, uh, which is pretty interesting. Um, but yeah, it sort of makes sense that this would be, I don't know, this is a, a ready kind of reference point for people, and so it's definitely something you would use. And the psycho hippie thing is kind of convenient in that way because it plays on this fear that people have mm-hmm. uh, already. And is a convenient way to sort of condemn the threat that that culture potentially sort of posed of these different ways of sort of approaching the world or the idea of the family um one of the things this is sort of tangentially related but it made me think of it is uh he makes this point or talks about the idea of the manson family as being kind of anti-consumerist or posing this threat to capitalism Mm mm-hmm in an interesting way which is sort of cool by focusing on the like dumpster diving thing so mm-hmm. um you know sustenance out of things that mainstream culture discards or well, wasn't there a book about them called the garbage people i think so yeah which i just kept thinking of like in the way that we use it now like sure. that person's garbage sure 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 the garbage person uh, but the idea of the people that like and manson sort of makes that like these are the people that you guys threw away that mainstream mm-hmm. culture didn't want so that's why they came to me essentially um but also the idea of creepy crawling as being this thing that usually when you, you know, invade someone's home like that, it's with an end. So trying yeah. to murder them or trying to burglarize them and get these things that you can sell or these things that you want. And the threatening idea of doing it seemingly without that end, that yeah. it's not about coming in and stealing this money so you can support your family or do do what you need to do, that it's an end in itself. And so that's sort of threatening and basically... This is another thing that came up in the when I taught that Emma Klein book, which is really good, which you should read at some point. The girls. The girls, yeah. Um, and he he references it a couple yeah. times, uh, and it's it's really good. But um, she sort of makes that point of it's this way of saying to people that this is the stuff that's important to you, and it's so unimportant to us that we won't even bother to steal it. So your crap is worthless, mm-hmm. and the things that you invest meaning in are meaningless, essentially. And talking about how that's really kind of sort of powerful, sort of threatening in a certain way that like you surround yourself with this useless crap and it doesn't make any difference if someone comes in with a knife that like you build up all this meaning around you in this stuff and it doesn't matter. And so I, I, I think that's sort of interesting that he talks about that because I feel like that's something that doesn't necessarily get talked about that much or when they 
life on the on the ranch at Spawn Ranch is pretty mm-hmm. minimal. Like, there's not a lot of creature comfort. There's not a lot of like material shit around, and so that's I don't know, maybe one of these threatening aspects of hippie culture that they feel like, you know, needs to be corrected. Yeah, is reminding people that like stuff is important. You should devote time and energy and money to this, versus this idea that like you could exist without it. And so creating that negative association that if you live this sort of Spartan, austere lifestyle, it means you're in a cult. And that's a thing to be avoided. Yeah. Well, and there's this, um, I think it's on, it's on 76, where he's quoting um, this criminologist, Carlene Faith, um, talking about the Manson family and then, like, the media and all the shit around it. Um, it's kind of this idea that... Um, it's almost as if the dominant culture had been waiting for the Manson family to happen so they could have proof that the hippie movement was no good. Right, right. So, like, this whole end of the 60s thing is kind of, like, people who wanted that kind of, like, blurring of boundaries and, um, yeah, like, revolutionary ways of, of, of thinking and living, they, like, wanted it to be over, made them well, uncomfortable. Yeah. So well, they yeah. were like, 60s wanna... are over. You want to be able to say, like... Murders happened. We're not being friends with weirdos there's, anymore. There's a rotten core within this. Yeah. And that, like, you know, superficially it's peace and love and whatever, but underneath you've got these, you know, bloodthirsty psychos, and so it's... We're right to be against this. We're right to push back against this because it's really ultimately bad and destructive. Um, this is another thing sort of tangentially related to that that I thought was sort of interesting, and he only touches on it a little bit, but there are those comparisons between Manson and uh, William Calley, the guy who's... Um, oh, the, the, the Mili guy? guy yeah. Which is sort of interesting that there are these, you know, sort of people run amok, these crazy people going and killing a bunch of people. Um, but there's this idea of both of them as being the sort of product of the state in an interesting way, which I thought was sort of cool, so... Manson as literally sort of a product of the penal system and yeah. becoming a better criminal on the basis of that, and that Cali represents the logic of the war in Vietnam, essentially, that what he was doing was not atypical other than maybe in scale. Yeah. That, like, stuff like that was happening all the time. It's just that he did it in a bigger way, or it was something that people were made aware of. Because that was Seymour Hirsch, right, Milai? Is he the one who broke that, I think? I don't know. Um... He's not going to tell us about Nixon beating his wife, though. But that's that, not news. Well, no. But that, like, all that stuff was already happening. It just... And this is, you know, the logic of the the people who are running the war. So, uh... The dude that did the, uh... There's an Errol Morris documentary about him. The major figure who was sort of running the, the war in Vietnam. Oh, I don't know. But, yeah... That that parallel was kind of interesting. That these are both these like psycho killer figures. Kaskasing. Exactly, and so you'll make this connection, and it's a way of kind of understanding them. Um, and a similar sort of thing with Callie, that he's like emblematic of this bigger current, but you go after him rather than dealing with where he comes from. Essentially. I mean, that's- everything always well yeah yeah <laughs> but i thought that was an interesting connection specifically at that kind of historical yeah. moment that it's like manson represents this bigger current of stuff but it's easier to take him out than to address the bigger thing and the same thing with Callie that he is you know perfectly on message for how the vietnam war is conducted but you know you pick him off rather than uh 
McNamara, Robert McNamara, I think is who I was thinking of. Um, but yeah, I thought that was sort of interesting. Um, and it, I guess I didn't know that that connection sort of existed or that people had yeah, made those references. Yeah, So that one was kind of cool. Um, I'm just kind of going through my marking things. Some of yeah. them are just like random asides and um, just like jokes that Melnick makes that a lot a lot of them don't land. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he he certainly had fun writing it, probably. <laughs> uh, he loves writing. Yeah. <laughs> Good for him. Exactly. Oh, one thing he, he, in the section where he's talking about the trial, um, the Life magazine story, it talks about the love and terror cult. Mm-hmm. It's like this big cover story um, that came out after the arrests. Isn't that the one, doesn't that come out with the like crazy eye picture of him on the so. cover? Yeah. Um, but, uh, he, uh, Malnick, uh, talks about how, like, the, the kind of the description of the family and their saga or whatever, um, is 205, reads as if it belongs to the tradition of the American captivity narrative, uh, one of the oldest and most significant forms of processing gender relations, which I think is interesting because that's, um, something that I read and, and wrote about when I was doing stuff about, like, um, like post nine eleven, like Iraq War, like Jessica Lynch shit. shit. Yeah, yeah, like Jessica Lynch and like drawing that line all the way back to colonial times and the idea that you know some kind of outsider savage person is gonna take our women and like defile them. Well, but then like and then you the, you won't want them back because they'll be fundamentally changed somehow. Right. And, but it's your job as, like, the white man to uh, protect your own or whatever. Yeah. You've got to police those boundaries. Literal and figurative. Keep that shit in a sarcophagus, bro. <laughs> Lock down. Lock it. This is on 221. I think it's mostly in relation to, to Sanders and that, the family book. Oh. But the idea of the role that um, Kasabian plays in stuff. It's Ed Sanders was like a... He was a musician and a poet. And, and he wrote for, like, the free press, right? Yeah. And, and so he was there pretty early on some of the coverage and talking about Manson as a countercultural figure. Right. And, I really wanted to actually engage with his music as art. Yeah. Which is sort of interesting, but... But um, then wrote a weird, like, kind of, like, documentary book. Yeah, the book is really interesting. You read it? Yeah, I read it a couple times. Uh, and it's... It's interesting because it's messy in the way that Helter Skelter isn't. The Helter Skelter is this very neat, sort of largely seamless kind of narrative that Bugliosi is trying to put together, and Sanders all about the like weirder aspects of stuff. So like the like satanic, process church kind of angle of stuff that you don't really get in Helter Skelter that I think Bugliosi entertains briefly and then discards, and Sanders kind of pursues it more, but. But the thing I thought there that was sort of interesting is he is kind of characterizing Kasabian as being this, like, traitor to the movement because she, like, names names and rats people out, essentially, Mm -hmm. and is, like, the star witness for the prosecution, um, which is sort of a weird way to think about it. But I think also, I don't know, I mean, it's, what, 15 years removed from Red Scare stuff? And so that idea of being an informant is maybe kind of loaded in a certain way that you're betraying the counterculture in a way that like ruins people's lives who are potentially innocent 
But it's weird in this case because you're betraying murderers, essentially. Um, which is, you know, a simplistic version of who those people are, I suppose. But I guess I'd never really seen anything that sort of portrayed her in that way, that, you know, Bugliosi sets her up as being this relatively kind of, like, angelic figure who's only with the family for a little while. She's got led astray for a doesn't, little bit. Doesn't actually kill anyone, is sort of mm-hmm. forced into her level of participation, and then is, you know, an excellent witness for them and really convincing it's interesting to sort of poke holes in her a little bit, I think. With knives and forks like they did to the LaBiancas? Yep. That's that's all I had. That's the stuff I had written down, so. I just got a few randoms. Sure. There's one part where he, um, just kind of an aside when they're talking about something else, but, you know, somebody describes how Charles Manson was charming and attractive and that, like, a lot of people wanted to think that he had some kind of like magical hypnotic powers um whereas like a lot of the people probably just like he was hot and he paid attention to these girls and like he's an attractive man or he was i mean he's dead now so his corpse probably doesn't look that good but just that like it could be that simple just like he's a hot dude who can charm people but he doesn't have to be like uh like a, a, a master of manipulation well, it kind of sounds like he was but like he doesn't have to be in order to get women to uh, want to hang out with him well that's a really interesting thing in this excerpt I teach in class when I teach the Klein book from this other book uh, member of the family by uh, Diane Lake and someone else um, who's a member she's in, in the Manson family when she's like 14 15 years old and is like legit kind of like in love with Manson that becomes her sort of entry point into things but Mm -hmm. talks about his sort of powers in that way um and goes back and talks about how like when he was in prison um sort of right before he was let out uh, in the period when the family sort of starts up he is getting these lessons from like former pimps about how you kind of control women Mm -hmm. um and so it's like making it seem like they're sort of the center of your world, like this is your only person. Um, but one of the things he talks about and one of the methods of control is just, like, be really good at sex, basically. And it talks about his sort of training process that when he gets out, that Mary Brunner is one of his first, like, girls. And that he spends a ton of time just, like, learning to be good at sex <laughs> and doing things that... Um, learning to be sort of responsive to a woman's needs, finding out what they like, and being able to do that and so, you know, in some ways it could be as simple as that. That's just like, this is something that would make him attractive to women because he's someone who seems to actually care about your pleasure. Right. Rather than just, like, getting his and getting out of there. That, like, that's something that's threatening. That there's this, you know... And I guess maybe maybe that's something that's changing in, in the 60s and 70s, potentially. But the idea that, like, sex is something that's meant for men's pleasure... Right. And if you're a woman, this is your wifely duty and you just do it and it's not right. about you and you orgasming or you enjoying yourself that it's just like about him. Right. Well, and if you are in it for your own pleasure, like there's something kind of like perverse. Well, yeah, you're about a slut you. or it's wrong. Yeah. That that's not what it's about. That sex is yeah. procreation. And if you're doing something else, then you're doing it wrong. Yeah. Kind of thing. And yeah, so just the idea that like there, there's certainly, you know, he's got to be at least in some ways 
a master manipulator to be able to do this stuff and is probably a yeah. sociopath. But that it can just be as simple as identifying someone's needs and responding to them yeah. in a way that's not necessarily pathological and saying that, hey, maybe the way you're doing this, dude who just uh, wants to, you know, hammer away for five minutes and get off and be done with it, maybe you're wrong. Yeah. And this is how you should actually be doing it kind of thing. Uh, and so maybe that's one of the reasons that he sort of responded to in the way that he is, that, like, dudes don't want to be cognizant of that. They just want it to be this sort of self-centered thing and to have sex be about them, basically. Which is kind of interesting. Yeah. No, I mean, I'm sure. I mean, Charles Manson, that guy fucks. Oh, yeah. That guy fucks so hard. <laughs> He's, like, ghost-fucking someone right now. Probably. Uh, just a couple more random things just in the kind of like later section which is just kind of like just little snippets about weird cultural things and some of them are like direct references to Manson Mm -hmm. but some of them like um, says it doesn't seem coincidental that there's a show that premieres in like the mid 70s in which um, uh, these like women going around doing uh things that women aren't expected to have a boss named charlie oh charlie's Charlie's angels Angels. yeah that's and i was like that's a reach think that is a coincidence yeah but it's an interesting idea i think this is melnick doing his own noun verb 9-11 kind of thing (laughs) where it's like not everything is about manson um but I mean, I guess I see the point that he's after there. It just feels a little bit shaky. Like that would be one that I would, you know, write on the margins of a student paper and being like more supporting evidence needed. Like, okay, I see what you're after, but I'm not, I'm not convinced by this. In the section where he's talking about like, like, uh, he talks about like Black Flag and their kind of like the marketing that the one dude's brother did or whatever mm-hmm. that uses mm-hmm. Manson and stuff and this one of the dudes in Red Cross talking about how like they weren't even particularly into Manson they were literally just trying to like freak their parents out (laughs) by being publicized like holding pictures of Manson and pretending to be into him Um, which to me is very much like the Marilyn Manson like what's the scariest person you can think of well and that's I I feel like he maybe talks about it tangentially but there's uh like how can you fuck with your parents like Guns N' Roses had a covers EP Mm -hmm. I think that they put out and they covered like a Manson song on it if I'm remembering correctly and I think it's it's the same level of like cultural insight that's happening there that it's just like this is gonna set people off so we'll do this not out of any real appreciation for Manson's music or any you know deeper cultural critique it's just like we're going to do this because it'll piss people off kind of thing. Uh, But I think, I mean, with Black Flag, too, it's just this sort of signifier of outsiderdom, sort of, that, like, we're not part of your culture. We're part of this, like, DIY punk kind of thing. And here's a reminder of that, that we're celebrating this dude that your culture has sort of demonized, or at least we're presenting him without comment in a way where he's always sort of presented with comment. Although I think that that one of the points that the book makes is that Manson, you don't need comment. You can just say the name Manson and it means something. Yeah. And if you haven't 
really dug into the case if you haven't read Helter Skelter if you don't know much about it there's this idea like because Manson's like referred to as like a mass murderer but like and I'm not saying he hasn't killed anybody but like I mean Shorty Shade is the only one that they specifically stick him with right. actually a killing he wasn't even there when yeah. the murders happened yeah uh, I mean, he's he's there on the La Bianca night, and he restrains them, but he's not in the house when they're being killed. Yeah. And theoretically, he maybe came back to the Tate house after the murders to help stage and clean up a little bit. But still, yeah, not involved in the actual acts themselves. Yeah. Like, I, I'm i fine with thinking of him as a, as a, like, a cult leader or pseudo-cult leader. Yeah. But, like, yeah, the idea that he's more evil than anyone else is kind of like um i don't know do you guys know about like the green river killer yeah and like uh uh other people that who maybe are better at blending into society well no one cares about the green river killer because he kills sex workers yeah and killed dozens of celebrities of women yeah like is that more evil and more scary yeah but, but I think I don't remember you know, if he's. We, we don't have like Marilyn Manson band members being like, "Oh, my name is the uh, Rachel Ridgeway." Yeah, which could be kind of cool. But, yeah. um, I think at at one point he sort of talks about him in in like folk devil terms. Uh huh. And I think that's a useful way of sort of thinking about them or him that like, if Manson didn't exist, someone would have had to invent him. Essentially, mm-hmm. that like you need this kind of like cultural boogeyman out there that you can, you know refer to every once in a while to as a corrective yeah when it seems like people are doing things that they shouldn't be doing or that you don't want them to do yeah uh-huh. um it's getting kind of mansony up in here exactly you... exactly uh i have one more thing sure it's when he is talking about these fucking like just he talks about the band negative land mm-hmm. for a long time who is interesting as a band, but how he uses them here is not interesting. And I don't think it works. Yeah. Um, basically, they they profited off of um, a murder, um, which I think is a shitty thing to do. It's like a publicity stunt. That he, yeah. yeah. Who gives a shit? Uh, in the 80s. Uh, but he's quoting some somebody. Somebody called Robert Berry. I'm just going to read you a thing that I marked. Okay. 319. Uh, Robert Berry's correctly noted that while Negative Land had few peers in its own heyday, uh, in our time, the band's, quote, febrile blend of archive crunching and avant trolling seems almost commonplace. And then I threw up <laughs> and I remembered uh, one of the reasons I left academia is because of fucking just packing in that like jargon well i think i mean that's one of the places where you see negative land talked about a lot because i when i was doing sort of like dissertation research avant trolling the the idea of them being sort of important in like early sampling and copyright stuff because they did like u2 stuff that u2 sued them for and there was a big Mm -hmm. deal about that um and the idea of like fair use and sourcing and stuff like that is sort of interesting but I think yeah I think they're one of those uh, one of those sort of touch points for like theory jerk offs that yeah it's just 
something that you can wax poetic about that doesn't necessarily have that level of thought or intent behind it that I think I mean they're a smart band from what I know of them and they're doing a lot of this stuff sort of deliberately but I think that the case that he uses there is one that like this is not great yeah how they're approaching this like I see the point that they're sort of trying to make about media sensationalism or whatever but like there are better ways to get to that yeah no some sections of this book seem like really kind of like broad and like interesting um particularly i think sections one and three um well yeah when he's not so locked into specific cultural artifacts i think it works better the the section about the like la culture landscape i just didn't care about like all the celebrities and shit which i know is important and he's trying to establish frank zappa stuff yeah the larger idea of the freak i think was sort of interesting the way that he's talking about that when i do think it's important he's trying to make the point like Manson wasn't an outsider, an outlier at this time. Like, he was an accepted part of this landscape. Like, he yeah. hung out with the insiders. Yeah. Um, I just don't care about them. Right. And then in that last section where he goes off about these, like, really hyper-specific things that, like, um, I don't give a shit about. Yeah. I was uninterested. I was like, this is just a thing that you're into. So, the, the only congrats. stuff with that that I thought was sort of interesting were like the the Neil Young things. Oh yeah. When he talks about because like he he quotes several times Neil Young as saying like this is a dude that probably could have been something like with the right band and the right production yeah that, like he had legit musical talent. Uh, Won't let Melnick use his lyrics though. And then um, yeah, it sort of points to these songs that might have been kind of indirectly sort of about that or album stuff that's sort of about like post Manson. Mm-hmm. stuff which is sort of interesting because I didn't I, I don't know a ton of Neil Young stuff and so it was sort of interesting to see that but yeah and I didn't um, really know that he knew him or anything and apparently yeah. you know kind of admired him as a musician yeah um, whereas like somebody like Melcher's like oh yeah no he wasn't that good at music like I barely like you know I just sent like a guy to go see him maybe one time or like Dennis Wilson who will sort of steal one of his songs mm-hmm. and then just kind of ghost him on it. Although he did have to move out of his house because he couldn't get the Manson family to leave. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's probably the better way to handle that, I think. Don't worry, he fucked all those girls a bunch, though. So, that was a book we read. Yeah, that no, was good. Yeah, it was interesting. It was interesting. Not, not an unqualified success, but definitely some some Intriguing. usable stuff in there and stuff... If I taught that novel again, I would probably think about... Like using parts of it. Or yeah, whatever. I thought about it, but it just didn't sort of work timeline-wise. But there's... Yeah, there's some stuff in there about his sort of broader... Manson's broader cultural impact that's kind of interesting and I think useful yeah. for, like... Because that's one of the questions I always have when we te- when I teach the book is the, like, why do we care about this? Why are we still talking about this now kind of thing? Mm-hmm. And he does a good job of kind of laying that out and saying why Manson is sort of important to late 20th century, you know... American culture and even still sort of to present day to a certain degree yeah but we'll say now we have a special guest who will be joining us to read um, this masterpiece of self-help act like a lady think like a man what men really think about love relationships intimacy and commitment by Steve Harvey a guy who hosts game shows. Did you do, like, did you still do the like kids say the darndest things? I was don't that know. him? 
I think he has done one of those. Okay, friends, if you would like to get in touch with us, you can email us at couplesbookclubcast at gmail.com. We have a website, couplesbookclub.blog. We're also on Facebook. Um, you can find us there. Um, you know, post some shit. Engage in a community. I don't know. Also, if you uh, think that I'm great, you can follow me on Twitter. It's at DinoLoreRexnut, or just search for Lauren Chestnut, no T in the middle. And, um, you know, I make jokes. <laughs> I guess we're done. I'm good. I man. guess we're done. I don't have anything else. Um, thanks for listening, friends. Uh, rate and review and subscribe and all that bullshit. Um, maybe one day we'll be on a chart. Okay, bye. <laughs>